This is Fate's Wide Wheel, a Quantum Leap podcast with Sam and Dennis. Every week, we review an episode of the cult classic time travel series and decide whether it holds up to present day viewing. And hopefully, we'll entertain you along the way. Be sure to check us out on our website, fwwquantumleappod.com, and also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under Fate's Wide Wheel. And be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody. Hello. Welcome to Fate's Wide Wheel. It is November the 8th, 2020. That it is. We were going to record this episode yesterday. Yes. I had a last minute sign to come up, but... Yeah, you had something I don't think our up. heads would have been in the game if we had recorded this yesterday. No, because in between you having something come up, which I think you texted me around like 10.30ish, 10.45ish in the morning or so... Uh, and when we would have actually recorded, which would have been at about one o'clock in the afternoon at 1130, um, central time, there was an announcement that was made. Yes. Joe Biden. CNN was the first to call it. Then you, you texted me, it was AP. Yeah. The AP called called it. it. And then finally the New York times called it. And when the New York times called it, that's when I was willing to be like, okay, here we go. (laughs) Yes. Joe Biden next president of the United States. Uh, If you've listened to our show before, you know our political leanings. We don't hold back on our political leanings. Um, A lot of work still left to do, uh, but we were in very good moods yesterday. Yeah. Pretty good mood today. It felt as though, and I posted something similar to that. I don't don't post a lot of stuff on my Twitter or Facebook these days. I haven't in a while. Um, But I posted something to the effect of that four plus years of psychic trauma seems as though it had finally been able to start healing Mm -hmm. and the physical relief in addition to the emotional and mental relief that began to just chip away at all of that damage and, and, and residue um, felt so good and, and, and still feels good. And it just feels good to feel good and not have it cover up disgust or shame or anger or sadness or frustration. And that's what I've been sort of reveling in these past 24 hours. Um, it's, there's no, there's no chest thumping here. There's nobody taking a victory lap. There's no, there's celebration, yes, to, to be sure. But more than anything, I think that both Kamala Harris and Joe Biden in their speeches last night, what they did was point to the future in a, in a, in a way that was devoid of ego um, and devoid of arrogance or selfishness or any sort of haughtiness and point towards the future with hope. When Harris said things like, I may be the first, but I will not be the last. That, to me, is a statement lacking any kind of hubris. And instead pointing to a future when people who look like her can see themselves in those positions. When Joe Biden talked about the future, and a future where 
black and brown and transgender people no longer have to fear whatever is being spouted by people in positions of power. That was inspiring and uplifting. And I think those messages make what we had four years ago seem much further off than that. Because when I was speaking to friends this morning and talking about those messages of hope and inspiration, immediately, of course, reminded me of President Obama. And to let it sink in that that was only four years ago, and yet it feels so much longer than that. So there is just a lot of relief. And like I said, it feels good to feel good right now. I've seen it observed that um, if this speech had been delivered four years ago, it may have just come across as a little cliched. Mm. Biden, Biden's speech and Harris's speech may have come, you know, a little, a little platitude, self, not self-serving, but you know, uh, cliche. But after four years of what we had, it sounds goddamn revolutionary and so full of of compassion and empathy. And like I said, it has been, it has been a long four years. This morning, I don't know why, I found myself going back and uh, watching some parts of the first SNL after the 2016 election. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you watched any of that. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, 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 Katie McKinnon as Hillary singing Hallelujah. Uh, There was a sketch that was like at a a party on election night, starting at 6 p.m., ending at 2 in the morning. Yeah. I don't know why I went down that rabbit hole. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah. I, uh, uh, I posted on my Facebook yesterday. Um, our, our oldest, Harrison, he is almost four. We have made the point of not saying anything about Trump to him. I realized yesterday he was not even really aware of the concept of what the president of the United States was. And uh, Betsy explained to him, he's kind of like uh, like the country's teacher, like the lead teacher. Um, and so last night, he was kind of bored with it. and didn't really quite understand the significance of it, obviously. But we made a point to watch the speeches all together as a family. He was happy that his bedtime got pushed back. <laughs> yeah. Um, you said something. I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I don't want to. No, 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 no. Go ahead. Well, you said something in particular that that affected me quite a bit when I read it, and that was that you only wanted to be able to speak to him of Trump in the past tense. Yes. And I loved that. And, you know, obviously Hattie's much younger, so she doesn't have any concept of of any of this. She's only a little over two years old. But um, I do... It, it it feels good to be able to to know that that I will be able to do the same thing. And going back to SNL for a moment, I watched a little bit of, of last night's SNL, and which of course they, you know, had stuff ready to go, and um, you know had had Jim Carrey and Maya Rudolph as as Biden and Harris respectively, and um, you know had a had a 
kind of a fun cold open. And then, of course, they, they, they even had Alec Baldwin there as Trump. And Alec Baldwin, I think, is magnificent as Trump and has been magnificent these past, you know, five years. Um, but I turned to Jessica and I just said, I'm done with this. I'm done with him. I'm done with him in all forms, whether it's really him, Twitter him, parody version of him. I'm done with him. I'm ready to ignore him completely. And uh, the fact that, you know, it, it seems like a Twitter ban is, is imminent, that world leaders are already ignoring him, already reaching out to Biden in his campaign. Um, you know, you've, you've heard uh, like Marcone and Merkel and even Boris Johnson and uh, the leadership in Iran, like already all, you know, reaching out to Biden. Um, it, 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 it's heartening. Uh, honestly. And I think that, yeah, for me, uh, it's, it's, it's just going to feel really good to move on. And I know that I'm not the only one to do this, but I certainly have drawn the parallel between an abusive relationship. And it's strange to see that so many people are talking about, you know, having a conciliatory tone towards the right and towards his enablers and towards, you know, the people that work with him. And for me, the only thing I could think of is if you're a victim of domestic violence and you continue to apologize and go back to that person, eventually it gets you killed. And sooner or later, you just have to move on. And I think for me, that's what this time is about. It's just time to move on. And that doesn't mean we can't come together. It doesn't mean that we can't work together to take care of and address the problems of, of the nation and the world. But it just means that for this moment, for this moment right now, I am packing my bags and I am walking out the door and I am not coming back. And in 73 days, I will absolutely be ready to reach out, to, to, to talk, to, you know, but for the next 73 days until the inauguration, I am ready to just walk out the door and move on. Sure. Here are my thoughts on how you give empathy to Trump supporters right now, uh, many of whom did not give us empathy for the last four years. Mm -hmm. Here's all you have to do. You keep doing what you were doing already. You keep fighting for things like uh, a minimum wage that reflects reality, reproductive rights, affordable health care, equal rights for everybody, regardless of race, disability, gender identity, expression, sexual orientation, a competent response to a pandemic. And that's it. Because those things will benefit Trump supporters, too, even if they have voted against it. And just continuing to fight for those things is empathy. You don't owe it to be nice to any, anyone. You don't have to care about their feelings. You don't have to control what you say on social media. You just keep doing what you were doing. Yeah. And... Years and years and years from now, if somebody stumbles across this recording and listens to this opening bit, I hope that they think to themselves, geez, that's really what it felt like? Man, those oh, poor God. bastards. Yeah, I really, um, and, and I think I, I said this at the start of Trump's presidency in, in regards to uh, my son, is that I hope years from now when he is a teenager, when he hears me and his mom 
and other adults talk about this time. Like he doesn't get it. Right. Like he doesn't understand what a big deal it was because by the time we get to that, when he's that age, we have undone a lot of the damage. Now, pandemic, over 260,000 dead, uh, and we're at the height of the pandemic right now. There are more cases now in the U.S. than than there ever have been. I don't see that being the case. Right. Um, But, uh, yeah. I, yeah, I think in a lot of ways it's akin to... Um, growing up and hearing for the first time that black people had to drink out of a different watering fountain. You know, it's like, that didn't make any sense to me. And now, unfortunately, it, it, it's something that I do understand um, as, as a representation of, of a segregated and, and, and hateful racist past that unfortunately is inextricably tied to our racist present. Um, but when you first hear that, when it's not something that is the case and you don't see it and you don't understand it, um, I do like to think that, yeah, that, that, that our kids, uh, when they are of an age where they start to kind of look back or hear about the way things were in 2017, you know, uh, or, or early 2020, that it does seem mystifying um i think that's all that we can we can hope for and that and that instead of cynicism um that there is a new sincerity um i was talking with my friend chris earlier today who i've mentioned on the podcast before and he brought that term up um because we were, we were kind of just throwing ideas back and forth, back and forth, and, 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 and he mentioned, uh, you know, wasn't that a movement, you know, back in the 80s or the 90s? And, you know, I, I had heard of it, and I was like, yeah, why, how do I know that? Why do I know that? And so I did a little Googling and went down the rabbit hole, and, um, you know, it was, it was mostly, predominantly a literary movement, but it, it found its way over into music and film and television as well. And someone who um, described it far better than I can or will be able to uh, and was a proponent of it and... and, and exemplified it in his work Infinite Jest was David Foster Wallace and um, if it's not too much trouble I'd like to take a moment just to read something that he wrote on New Sincerity because I feel like it is important Um, the next real literary rebels in this country might well emerge as some weird bunch of anti-rebels born oglers who dare somehow to back away from ironic watching who have the childish gall actually to endorse and instantiate single entendre principles, who treat of plain old untrendy human troubles and emotions in U.S. life with reverence and conviction, who eschew self-consciousness and hip fatigue. These anti-rebels would be outdated, of course, before they even started, dead on the page, too sincere, clearly repressed, backward, quaint, naive, anachronistic. Maybe that'll be the point. Maybe that's why they, they will be the next real rebels. Real rebels, as far as I can see, risk disapproval. The old postmodern insurgents risked the gasp and squeal, shock, disgust, outrage, censorship, accusations of socialism, anarchism, nihilism. Today's risks are different. 
The new rebels might be artists willing to risk the yawn, the rolled eyes, the cool smile, the nudged ribs, the parody of gifted ironists, the oh, how banal, to risk accusations of sentimentality, melodrama, of overcredulity, of softness, of willingness to be suckered by a world of lurkers and starers who fear gaze and ridicule above imprisonment without law. Who knows? And I think that that ties in to so much of the speeches that we got last night and this feeling that it's okay to feel good. And like you were saying, Dennis, that empathy and compassion and the conviction to follow through on the battles that we have tried to fight and are still willing to fight for these past four years to get children out of cages and reunited with their families to ensure that people of all races, of all genders, have the same rights as everyone else, that we are in a financially sustainable society that allows people the same opportunities to live, that no one else gets to take advantage of those that they consider beneath them to live in that top 1% that controls so much of the wealth, that we are able to actually find a way to uplift everyone that that is the best thing that we can do and to do it with sincerity and not be afraid of the ridicule or the cool smiles of those on the opposite side that think it's unattainable. That that is what we fought for and that is what we can try to put our faith in and work for now, knowing that there is so much work yet to be done. I agree. I think so that sums it up nicely. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking, of, yes. Uh, I, I think the last couple of days, as as uh, as we did not know uh, uh, what the results were going to be, we talked about how it's appropriate that we we have a, an episode talking about the Civil War. Yeah, coming up. You know, and not to delay our talking about the episode specifically. Um, but I am curious. It's one of the things that I was thinking about earlier today and even yesterday as well. Um, what do you recall? Just because I know how it was for me, but what do you recall about your personal experience with learning about the Civil War and the reasons for the cause of it, the, you know, what it meant and, and, and you know, contextualizing it for you as a young person, you know, growing up in the 80s? Sure, that's a great question. I feel like my uh, school, and I grew up in rural southern Illinois, small town, uh, White County, where I've I've joked before, (laughs) they they like to keep it that way. And uh, uh, one of my history teachers in high school, he used to say on a a regular basis, and and he meant it with sincerity and... uh, uh, he was not celebrating this. He was just addressing a very uh, cruel reality. It's like they, they, it was not an accident that my area of the state was called White County. Mm. Um, uh, but I, I feel like my education somehow split the difference that it was, it was slaves were involved or enslaved people freeing them. That was part of the reason, but it was very much kind of like a, also a state's rights kind of, kind of issue. Um, I remember it was in, uh, 
seventh or or eighth grade, there was a big uh, school assembly where we uh, re-fought the Civil War by means of a trivia contest. Uh, split up like two teams, uh, North and South, and whoever could answer the most correct questions about the Civil War won the Civil War. Wow. Wow. Um, <laughs> I think I think the South won. Yeah. Yeah. And look, anytime I think on think back on that now, I just kind of cringe. Yeah. Um, yeah. How about you? Um, you know, it's funny because in a, in a weird way, much like dinosaurs, I can't recall a time in my life when I wasn't aware of the civil war in, on some level. Um, you know, early on, uh, I, I, I don't know exactly how or where it happened, but it, it, it must have been something I learned. Um, you know, I'd imagine it was maybe one of my grandparents. Uh, it, it felt as though, you know, Abraham Lincoln was a hero, you know, and that, and that I needed to, that this is someone to look up to, and these are the reasons why. And, of course, that's, you know, clearly linked to the Civil War. Um, and, and, and I received books, um, on the Civil War, uh, as a child, but the, I think the number one thing that sparked my interest and, and stoked my, my, you know, uh, knowledge of the war was the fact that my grandmother, uh, worked, um, for, the Anderson House in Lexington, Missouri, and this was a site of uh, a Civil War battle. And so, as a five-year-old um, who would go spend the day with Grandma while she was at work, uh, it was pretty amazing. I can remember sitting on the stairs of this old house and putting my finger in the bullet holes um, on the stairs, and uh, you know, getting a uh, you know a piece of like shrapnel and a bullet, you know, as, as, as a, like a gift, um, and, and watching as there were excavations taking place in the front yard, you know, because this was a continuing process and project, um, and I've actually gone back and, you know, gone to their website, you know, not super recently, but within the past couple of years, just to kind of be like, oh yeah, I, you know, as a kid, I used to sit there, and so that was something that I think my, you know, my, my burgeoning curiosity wanted to be fed on, on this particular conflict. And so I remember that there was a, um, a diorama like this, 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 uh, you know, beautiful, like scale model set of, of the house and, you know, toy soldier, not toy soldiers, but you know what I mean? Like pewter soldiers that have been painted and, you know, little cotton that had been stretched to resemble smoke coming from the, the rifles and the cannons. And, you know, there was blood and, and, you know, of course for like a five or six year old kid, like looking at that, you're just like, Oh my goodness. You know, so there was something about it that I couldn't help but be, uh, interested. And, um, it, it's something that I tried to continue to, to learn more about. And then of course, when I was only nine years old, but when Ken Burns civil war, uh, came on, um, I, I can remember watching bits and pieces of it. 
And then luckily uh, in school, it was something that, that, you know, again, we were shown bits and pieces, we were shown the whole thing. And I can remember in particular being struck by, I would have been 10 or 11 years old, I believe, um, that, that one of the volumes that was chosen to be viewed in class um, had interview segments um, with an elderly black woman who, um, you know, was at the point she was being interviewed, I think like 102, 103 years old or something. And so she had, you know, vivid memories of, um, you know, her parents' stories. You know, she, she knew she was close enough to that, to that generation. And so you know, hearing that, I think, had a profound effect on me because growing up, even though I had been taught on an intellectual level that racism was bad and that slavery was bad, it didn't, it didn't connect with me in such a profound way emotionally um, I think as it did in seeing someone talk about these things with, you know, next to firsthand knowledge. And I, I think that where we are today in particular, that to understand the Civil War and to contextualize it properly there must be some sort of emotional investment in the ills of slavery and racism and what it has bred all the way up into our present day. So for me, I think that it, 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 it went on a journey of recognizing it as this armed conflict, being interested and intrigued by it in the same way that you know people get interested and intrigued by action movies, basically, uh, wanting to learn more about it and, you know, for the, the history uh, and, and the heroism and, and the, you know, looking up to certain figures and then understanding it on, on, I think, a more emotional and primal level that, that again, I think is important to contextualizing it even, even today. Um, <clears throat> and I still, you know, I still, I own now, you know, Ken Burns' Civil War documentary. It's something that I've revisited numerous times and, um, a role that I, that I had in Indianapolis before I moved to Chicago. Uh, I played a man who had been, uh, taken prisoner in Beirut, and he was, um, you know, had to had to live. Um, oh God, what's it called? I'm going to forget it now. Um, um, you know, when they 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 put you all by yourself. Uh, <laughs> Isolation. Um, yeah, yeah. This other word I'm looking for, but yes, you know, he was he was forced to to live in captivity by himself in isolation, and um, and uh, he was a school teacher, a history professor, and uh, one of my ways into the character because he talks, he has a monologue where he actually talks about the Civil War a little bit, and so I immediately just was like, he's an expert in the Civil War. That's that's his kind of area of uh, expertise in history, and so I inundated myself even more with the Civil War, just to kind of get in touch with the character a little bit. Um, even though it was just this one small little piece, it, it helped me. It was like my window in. And so it's always been something that's been very um, uh, fascinating to me, but even more so, I think, important to me. So uh, I, I, this episode um, stood out at the time that it aired even, because even at that age, I was I was very interested and uh, um, you know certainly wanted to see where they were going to go. Um, when I heard that this was happening as a kid. Sure. I'm trying to uh, I'll look it up here. When this episode came out in relation to Glory, 
Because I remember that mm. being a big deal at the time. I remember that being a, a movie that we actually watched in class about sure. the Civil War. Uh, 1989 uh, was when that yeah. movie came out. So yeah, by the time it came out on video, they would have been showing it in school, early 90s, like a, a, probably around about the same time that we were watching this uh, this episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, with with that, should we uh, <laughs> should we should we start our dive in into this? Uh, let's let's do it. Um, we we are here. Uh, all half, evidence a half hour into the contrary, yeah, yeah, perhaps to discuss the leap between the states. Uh, this episode was directed by David Hemmings. We'll get to him in a second. Written by Richard C. Oakey. Our air date is March 30th, 1993. Our leap date is September 20th, 1862. And Sam has leapt into Captain John Beckett, and we are in Mansfield County, Virginia. Um, Dennis, right before you get to your TV gag description, uh, David Hemmings, the director, uh, it's worth noting that he had also directed the pilot. Uh, he directed Genesis Part 1 and Part 2. Um, Began his career as as an actor, uh, but uh, made his way into directing for a time, um, while at the same time doing quite a bit of acting. Uh, He'd also directed a few episodes of Magnum P.I., The A-Team, In the Heat of the Night, and uh, as an actor uh, had actually uh, starred in quite a few uh, television series and films, uh, British films mostly, as he he was uh, indeed a... a, um, uh, a British actor. Uh, one of the films that he starred in uh, is a film called Blow Up, which was the first English language film directed by Michelangelo Antonioni. Antonioni is actually one of my favorite directors. He's an incredible director, and um, Blow Up, unfortunately, is a film of his that I've not yet seen, um, but uh, also famous for directing films like La Ventura, um, Le Note, uh, and a few others. But um, yeah, uh, interesting, interesting guy, and an interesting, uh, I think. Um, uh, sort of footnote in, in Quantum Leap history that he directed the pilot and then would go on to direct Leap Between the States, which, as you mentioned off mic earlier, was the next-to-last episode shot um, for the series, um, even though it was aired third from the last. Yeah. I was going to do the uh, TV guy description. Oh, are you ready for this one? It's a good oh, one. Oh, yeah. We, we, we've been missing the puns in the TV guy description for a while, <laughs> and here we go. Sam secedes from the regular rules. <laughs> when he becomes his own great grandfather, a Union officer in the Civil War. Uh, in other countries, uh, uh, in the U.S., the uh, the marketing and promotional for commercials leading up to it it was called "Return to the Civil War." The working title of the script was simply 1862. In Germany, it was known as "Break the Chains." In France, it was known as "Blue Coats." And in Italy, it was known as No Gentleman. Oh, no, no. It was known as Officer. Officer. Oh, 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 I misread that. Oh, (laughs) Officer. The ellipses threw me off. Officer, No Gentleman. Oh, my God. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Um, Um, Also worth noting that this episode was nominated for an Emmy in 1993 for Outstanding Individual Achievement in Sound Editing. Yeah, um, didn't win unfortunately, but not something that, that Quantum yeah. Loop did a lot of. Was, no. was winning, but it got nominated. <laughs> it got nominated. Yeah. So, yes. Um, 
Richard C. Oakey, also who's the writer of this episode, worth mentioning, in addition to uh, previous credits writing episodes of Knight Rider, Tequila and Benetti, uh, was responsible, uh, of course, for writing um, or contributing to uh, five other episodes of Quantum Leap. Um, and actually, you know, we've, we've spoken about these episodes before and, and for last season episodes or, or, you know, fourth season episodes, uh, I, I think that he acquitted himself well, a single drop of rain, which was a, a good fourth season episode, no doubt leaping to the shrew, you know, which I think we kind of came down somewhere in the middle, but as far as season five goes, not bad. Uh, starlight star bright, which we enjoyed, uh, return of the evil leaper and then goodbye Norma Jean. Um, so again, you know, kind of coming late to the Quantum Leap game as far as his writing goes. Um, but but uh, I think certainly not going to find himself at the top of the list, but uh, not going to find himself at the bottom of the list either. So uh, there's that. <laughs> no. And I will say, um, I, I rewatched this episode first thing this morning. Um, and this is not so much a testament to the writing, but just overall uh, production, sound editing, cinematography uh the opening sequence of this episode is probably the best thing the show had done in a good half season yeah i would agree although what i would say and one of the notes that i took is that there is something about the pre-credit leap-in sequence that feels a little off to me It, it 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 there's there's a sort of a lack of conviction and I think it's partly the music. I think that, that and, and maybe a little bit the editing. There's something about it that feels almost like tongue-in-cheek. There's something that's almost sort of like, he's in the Civil War, guys. This is going to be interesting. And then you come back from that the, the opening credit sequence, and man, then it lands. Yeah. Like, then I, it is, yeah. Yeah, I, I will say... The oh boy is really out of place in this episode. Mm-hmm. It just does not. Yeah, it's everything you just said. It kind of like you know sets it up that way. Um, but then opening credits happened, and and yeah, by the time we came back around to the opening credit sequence, I had forgotten that. But uh, not the right, opening credits, but like the opening sequence after the opening credits. Right, right. Because that pre-credit sequence, I even took the note that it feels like they're not giving this the same weight as they've given, you know, Vietnam, for instance. And that, and that felt odd to me. It's like maybe they feel disconnected because this was 125 years ago, whereas this other thing was only 25 years ago. But, but then, like I said, you come back from the credits uh, and, it, and it, it doesn't feel that way at all. It, it does feel like this is, like there is, a, you know, a respect given to it. And, you know, they really go there with the dying soldier that Sam stumbles upon. You oh, know, yeah. The, the, it's bloody. It's, you know, it's not good. It's, you know, it's emotionally fraught, and it's, it, it, it's a good moment, and it, um, the, you know, Scott's reaction to everything, it really sells it in a way that the, that the immediate leap-in didn't. I mean, they had done so many fake-outs at this point. You could be forgiven if you thought, oh, oh, Civil War reenactor. Right. I mean, how many times has he leaped into a television show? that was shooting and didn't realize that he was on a television show that was shooting. Right. Or whatever. Things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, just the, the, yeah, that entire opening sequence with, with the, uh, with the dying soldier and then getting shot. Right. And then, um, and then running for, running for cover and, and being in pursuit. 
like I said, it's it's the first time in in a while that the show had given us any kind of action sequence that really felt like 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 really well done and shot like almost more like movie quality level or at least more than than, than we have seen anything in in recent memory in the show yeah. um yeah there's there's definitely a level of quality and immediacy to it and and um it you know it feels like Sam is genuinely in danger which isn't something that we've gotten a whole lot of this season really you know sure. with the exception of like Lee Harvey Oswald and some of the evil leaper stuff you know mm-hmm then we get to the barn. Right, right. which I, I will say is interesting for a couple of reasons because he falls, you know, he falls into this creek and then it's like, bam, we don't, we, you know, we kind of fast forward to the barn. We don't know how long it's been, how far he's traveled, how, you know, it's, it's, it, it's, it's a kind of interesting cut to make because it skips the journey to the barn. Um, and I found myself liking it. I had forgotten how much the idea of the Underground Railroad played mm-hmm. in this um, episode. And, like, when in this barn scene, when Al first appears, one of the things that jumped out of me on this rewatch is that Sam talked about how, like, uh, a black family had had taken him and put him in the barn. Yeah. And I'm like, as, as I do everything these days, like, I'm, you know, I'm taking care of a son, I'm looking at other stuff online, whatever, and I'm like... Did, did I miss that part? And so I like, I rewound it and I'm like, did I like, Oh no, they just didn't show it. Yeah. And like, that's a pretty important plot point to like, not show. Like, I wish they would have shown Sam passing out and being Mm. picked up, you know what I mean? Or or not passing out, but being like half conscious or something like him being aware of it. That's a pretty big info dump to just get an exposition and not actually see. You know, the thing that I found interesting about it, and I think the reason why I, I ended up liking it is is because I did feel that due to getting shot, you know, being in shock, you know, due to that and also his surroundings and everything, that there was this element almost of delirium about it, that mm-hmm. there's this element of, of like even Sam at, in the moment is sort of like recalling like, oh, that's how I got here, as opposed to him just flat out being like, oh no, this is what happened and this is how I got here and this is why I'm here. Because I agree if it had been more matter of fact about it, then why not just show it? But I think because of the way that that Scott delivers the line and the way that it seems like Sam is just kind of out of it, it, I don't know, it added this really interesting kind of like almost magical dreamlike quality sure. that I could make up in my head, yeah. uh, which I did appreciate. I do. Um, it just occurred to me, if this episode were to be redone in 2020 the episode would start not with sam leaping in but with sam waking up in the barn yeah totally shot in a union outfit and then like through some flashbacks we see everything that happened before yeah. then which would actually be really cool it would have been yeah really yeah. cool <laughs> uh but such as so al shows up um and, and overall i really enjoy this episode um the one main gripe I do have with this episode, and Matt talks about it in his book, um, it does not hold. The plot does not hold up to scrutiny, uh, and it's basically Back to the Future, Civil War edition. Yes, I, I yeah, I took that same note. <laughs> um, but Al does show up, and it, uh, you know, but by this point he's been called Captain Beckett by the dying soldier. 
he yeah. he finds the letter in the barn, like with his orders that says Captain John Beckett. And then Al arrives. Um, not that I would have preferred it. Like it would have been really interesting if Al didn't show up for a good portion of this episode, because like they said, because taking so long to find him because he's leaped outside of his own timeline. That would have been interesting. I, and I will say that it, because of the shortcut they take by basically, you know, getting Sam from the Creek to the house and having time pass that we don't see it, it does indeed feel like a shortcut to get Al into the episode earlier, frankly, because you're right. I think had had he not been in the episode for a longer amount of time for the viewer, um, it would have perhaps felt a little bit more impactful and there would have been a little bit more tension. And when he does finally show up, it you know would have felt almost like a little bit of a payoff to have him you know, be like, you know, we've been looking all over for you. Whereas in this case, because they do take, you know, take that literal shortcut to the barn and it, we don't get that. For the viewer, it's like Al's in in the normal. Yeah, you know, there are episodes where he hasn't appeared this soon. You know what I sure, mean? Yeah. <laughs> Whereas in this case, it's just sort of like you know, oh yeah, this we're by the numbers here, and without the info dump that you mentioned earlier, and even though again, I do I do kind of like it. Without that info dump that we get earlier, for all we know, it could have been fifteen minutes. He could have just you know hoofed it from the creek to this barn he saw, and be hiding out. Whereas with the info dump that Sam gives us, we're supposed to think that this is you know, hours and hours later. Mm. Um, but it is a nice moment for Al. Uh, you know, I think that, I think that Al, uh, in this particular moment, it's great because the, the relief he has to find his friend, um, you know, even shouting to, you know, to, to Gushy that he's found him. Um, but, and then he has that line about you look good in dark blue, which is also a nice little moment of levity. Mm. Um, I also, you know, I enjoy it, be, and I think partly because they are in new territory that gets to be, uh, that's not just like for, you know, for for melodramatic purposes. That it's neat to see Sam's sort of amazement over the fact that I'm in the Civil War. Like, how did this happen? Like, and him, you know, the scientists kick in and start to theorize. You know, maybe this is how this happened. That's what I, I thought that that was that was cool. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of the discovery of, of who Sam is, who he's leapt into. Um, it's, it's nice, you know, genetic transference as they refer to it in the Mm -hmm. episode. Um, you know, worth noting for a little bit of historical context, of course, that, you know, George McClellan was of course uh, a real civil war general. He was indeed the, uh, the general at the time, uh, of this episode, uh, that wouldn't last very much longer. He would be fired in November. Um, there's a, one of my favorite quotes having to do with the civil war does indeed have to do with McClellan, who was famous for basically just having the troops run drills over and over and over again, and never actually taking them out into battle. Uh, Lincoln, uh, met with his top generals in a meeting that McClellan did not attend. And he said, if general McClellan does not want to use the army, I would like to borrow it for a time. <laughs> Which is still just one of my favorite favorite quotes. Uh, McClellan did not like uh, Lincoln. Uh, he also apparently was a little bit racist. Um, said that he would not be uh, an army for abolitionists. Um, 
that if if the union won the war, that they should uh, work out a slow and smooth transition for uh, slaves and their masters. Um, so you know, yeah. So fuck George B. Uh, uh, but yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah. That's that's who his orders are, are signed by, um, and that would of course be. Um, historically accurate because there are mm-hmm. some inaccuracies throughout the episode just a bit um, yeah. yeah yeah but yeah you know yeah um and but, now and now olivia shows up olivia yeah. barrett covington uh played by kate mcneil that's uh, right our, our first um serious guest star of the episode uh already did some looking on uh on imdb good news to report all of our actors in this episode still alive that's right our director's not but the actors uh, are. The actors are. <laughs> actors are. Uh, yeah, Kate McNeil. She has had a, a fairly prolific career. Um, her she, IMDb reports active up until about four years ago. Um, this is not the only time she would co-star with Scott Bakula, as she also gets our Star Trek shout-out of the week. She was uh, in Star Trek Enterprise episode Affliction. Um, so she would get to reunite with Scott in the future. Uh, and then, of course, this is not her first foray into the Civil War, as she played Augusta Barkley in North and South Book Two. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah. Very nice. But yeah, so she shows up with a gun, uh, and with Isaac, and, uh, yeah, she's... Uh, she is, uh, you know, in Virginia. She is in Southern Territory. There is a Union soldier in her barn. She's obviously wary, and yeah, yeah. I don't. Yeah, I know what else to say because every, it's just a pretty straightforward scene. After that, it's just setting up the stakes of you're a Union soldier. I'm in the South. You're a threat. Here's a gun. Here's my. Here's Isaac. Um, until we know what you're doing, we're we're gonna put you in shackles. Yeah. And Isaac has that line, never dreamed I'd be putting, be putting these this. on a white man. Sure. Yeah. Because he shackles Sam. Um, um, and then as, as, as the scene ends, as, as Sam is walking away, Olivia turns to Isaac and, and says that he's gone too far, bringing a Union soldier into the barn. Isaac said, you know, I, he was dying. I didn't know what else to do. Um, so we, we get some more insight of how Sam wound up in the barn. But yeah, for now, um, Sam is a prisoner. He's been shot. Uh, and it's not, and it's not getting shot, you know, in uh, in present times, in modern times. It's it's getting shot in the Civil War. Yeah. So it's, so it's a big deal. So we should probably work yeah. on getting that that bullet out. Which, to be fair, most likely, I mean, maybe it caught him enough in the fleshy part of the arm. Although, if you look at where they decided to put the the special effect, it doesn't look like it. No. Uh, most likely, if he was shot with you know with, with ball shot, which is probably what they would have been using, it probably would have shattered the bone in his arm. Um, and, you know, to the point that most likely he'd be looking at amputation, um, in 1862, but, uh, of course, miraculously it went straight through, uh, no, no real damage, everything's going to be okay. Um, I do think there's an interesting choice made early on in the episode, um, that we have Olivia giving us these stories, about, you know, the bad blue coats. Um, and it's not untrue 
you know, there, there, there are, you know, fact-based accounts of Union soldiers, um, you know, committing atrocities during the war, um, and that uh, it, 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 it just seems kind of an odd choice to go with that first. Like, that's the information that we're really kind of given about the current time and place and the feelings of this character, and we, we kind of are ignoring slavery, really. I mean, yes, we, we know the Underground Railroad, you know, we're getting these hints that that is something that's going on here. We're getting some hints that there's more to Olivia than meets the eye. Um, but it, 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 it did seem to almost um, take this sort of lean into, oh, look, she's a good Southerner, she's a good slave owner kind of thing. Um, and, um, and we know that obviously she's, you know, we, we come to find out she is an abolitionist, that she is trying to, you know, free slaves, um, you know, that Isaac has been working with her, not necessarily for her. And yet at the same time, she was indeed a slave owner, you know, that her, that her slaves worked for her, you know, that, that she even has a line later on in the episode about how odd it is to see a white man in an apron, um, you know, and so so I, I just think that it's an interesting choice, especially at a time when, again, I love the Civil War. I actually enjoy Shelby Foote's uh, uh, three-volume history of the Civil War. That said, that documentary and his books certainly didn't necessarily go a long way towards, you know, disenfranchising those that believed in the lost cause mythology. And, and so by by kind of having this sympathetic Southern former slave owner character vilify these Union soldiers, it just does seem to be uh, an odd choice, in my opinion. And I think that a lot of that is, is 2020 context. Um, I don't know that it would have been as noticeable in 1993. I don't know that that's a good thing. I had the same thought, yeah. like realizing, like, 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 really processing, like, oh yeah, she, she's a slave owner, and uh, especially in the in the, the this new context that we've had in twenty twenty in the last couple of years of, um, uh, it's uh, I'm trying to think the right way to put it. I've seen some very harsh language from people like trying to justify or giving any sort of historical or cultural relativism to give anyone a pass for having been a slave owner, like slave right. owner equals bad person, hundred percent black and white, you know? Um, uh, yeah. I wonder how that choice would have been made in 2020. Um, Yeah, I'm trying to think if, if I can think of a, a, of a parallel of the show. Um, I don't know if you've watched any of Outlander, the TV show. A little or, bit. Or, or yeah, the book series. Bit, yeah. um, to, to not... Uh, huge spoilers. Coming up, they are going to be in America during Revolutionary War times. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do address slavery. And there is one recurring character who I, I think at first... He appears as to be an enslaved person, but then it turns out like, no, he is a free man and he is working as a servant for like one of the main characters. And I think that that choice may have been made so that we can have a character to root for who is not a slave owner. Sure. 
And also watching this, uh, you know, one thing we, we left out of the scene at first is her intention is to get Sam or John Beckett. Um, she may be getting him in better health and may be tending to his wound, but at least superficially, she has every intention to hang him from that tree that they show in the yard. Um, and of course, now I think there's uh, much more awareness now in 2020 than there was 30 years ago, just um, the significance around the idea of of hanging someone, especially during Civil War times. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, especially when we get to the end of the episode when they... Uh, uh, when Isaac is caught with the with the black family in the barn, it's the the officer's intention to to hang them almost immediately. But then Sam right. delays. Um, yeah, all of that lands a little bit differently in 2020 than than 30 years ago. I don't think we can necessarily fault the episode, but it does land a little differently. Yeah. Yeah, well, and 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 I think that uh, you know there there are a lot of things that that have happened just in the past six months um, that that certainly caused this episode to um, instigate thoughts and feelings that it might not have even a year ago. Um, for instance, all the Gone with the Wind references uh, that get made throughout the episode. Go like, get them. Go get them, Rhett. Right. So, right. Yeah. Which 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 has multiple uh connotations to it. You know, first of all, like let's make no mistake, like Rhett was a white southern male who embodied this sort of Margaret Mitchell kind of infused him with this chivalrous, you know, kind of white knight um energy. Um, he was a blockade runner, you know, he was doing all these things to, to, to help the South and, and, uh, and was a Confederate. Now, you know, it, it's not, um, it's, it's, it's also true that of course, later in the film that he, he goes, um, and, and, and in the novel as well, he does oppose the sort of the early beginnings of the clan. He does, you know, but at the same time, he doesn't have a problem with all the slaves, you know. He doesn't have a problem with 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 what's going on. Uh, he's fighting for the South. Um, in addition to that, he sexually assaults Scarlet, um, both in the film and in in the book. It's a little bit more explicit in the book. So it is an interesting. And again, it's one of those choices that gets made without necessarily thinking about all those. I don't think Richard C. Oakey was sitting there thinking to himself. Right, this this you know this guy who represents this sort of lost cause myth better than anybody, and uh, also committed sexual assault. I'm going to use that as the name that Al decides to call Sam when he's pursuing his great grandmother. I'm sure none of that was on the table. However, I do think again that in 2020 context, we're thinking about that in a different way, and arguably, we're thinking about it in a different way even more in the past six months than we did a year ago. Not that we weren't already thinking of it that way over the past 10, 15 years or so in particular, as we, you know, as we kind of continue to evolve our dialogue and, and change the way that we're looking at certain things. That said, I'll also sit here and say, I, I like that film and I haven't watched it in a while. And maybe I would feel very differently about it if I watched it now. Um, but I, 
again, you know, talking about my childhood interest in the Civil War, I watched that film very young. I attempted to read that novel very young. And um, I know that when it was initially pulled from HBO Max, there was a moment when I thought, should we be pulling these things? And at the time, it was the right decision. And what HBO did when they put it back on the streaming service was add a content warning. And that, that's the key. You know, it's like, let's, let's inform. Let's say, hey, you know, this movie depicts this, this, and this. And it does it in this way because it was made during this time because this, this, and this. As opposed to just saying, like, let's throw it out with the garbage. Um, because it is, it, is, it is a technical achievement of filmmaking. You know, you look back 81 years ago, movies like that weren't really being made. It, you know, it changed the game in a lot of ways. So I think, you know, you have to kind of, again, you have to have that, that, that particular kind of context. But, but anyway, in addition to the Gone with the Wind references, you know, there are the, the, the N-word gets dropped um, pretty casually. It? Yeah. In this episode? Yep, it sure does. I, I felt... Uh... Every time it was dropped, they... I don't even want to say the, the other variation. The, the softened oh. version that was more, accepti- that was more acceptable. Uh, right. I Sam, felt like... It, I felt like every time they said it, that they said the, that word instead of no, the yeah, word. Sam, Sam, Sam says the softened version that you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, but, but Montgomery, when, they, when, when talking about the slaves, when they find them, when Sam first invents the Aubrey Covington persona, he does, he uses it. He uses it. It's the only time it's used, um, but he does use it. Okay. Um, it's also, you know, it's also worth mentioning, of course, that does this episode promote the white savior trope that, that, that people talk about? Look, you know me. I'm not big on tropes. I'm not even big on the term white savior trope, but we wouldn't be doing our due diligence if we didn't discuss that because it is a thing. And so you look at this episode and, you know, you do kind of get left with the idea that it's like, well, kind of, you know, on one hand, Isaac certainly had agency prior to Sam arriving. You know, Isaac was absolutely helping and enabling other people of color uh, like himself to, to get their freedom. And then again, Without Sam, things would have definitely gone a little caca. So you do have to ask yourself, is no. Sam okay, so, the white savior here? Okay, so let's stop right there. Uh, yes, I mean, and, and looking at, this, at the white savior, you could argue that any episode of Quantum Leap that deals with race has a little bit of the white savior trope to it. Color truth, black on white on fire, this episode... Whatever, uh, but to kind of steer away from that and whatever. So you know, you just said like without Sam, Isaac would have whatever. What does Sam do in this episode? What history does he change? Okay, so that that gets us into an interesting conversation because uh, earlier you mentioned it about the plot not holding together. I think at this point, and I, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and take the position not, and I'm going to admit right off the bat, I don't necessarily fully believe this. I'm kind of somewhere in the middle, but I'm going to go ahead and take the position just for our dialogue's sake to say, I think that people that think that this plot is is weird or wonky or doesn't or shouldn't exist are wrong. And the reason why I say that is because Quantum Leap has proven to us this season that there are events that we, sitting here in 2020 or even in 1993, know and take as truth that happened. There are events that Sam and Al and Project Quantum Leap, however, don't. 
Jackie Kennedy being killed in the assassination attempt on John F. Kennedy in the original history. Marilyn Monroe dying a year before she was supposed to actually, or not supposed to, but before she actually did die as we take it. And in this instance, you know, uh, um, the, 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 the runaway slave family, you know, being, being killed. Um, and, and the potential for, you know, uh, Olivia and John maybe not getting together and Isaac perhaps not running away. Now, I would argue that in the original history, Isaac definitely did get away, that it was the family that he was trying to assist to get away. They were the ones that were killed. Um, because that's the only information that's ever made explicit in the course of this episode. Al never says in the original history, Isaac dies. He never says in the original history, Olivia and John don't get together or anything like that. However, I think that we've been shown enough possibilities for things to be slightly different along the way in, in, in Quantum Leapverse that I don't necessarily take this as a fault of the episode. Um, I think that maybe it was done for convenience. Maybe it was done as a result of weak writing, but I'm not necessarily going to sit here and say like, this episode's got plotting issues because the leap doesn't work. What does Sam change, etc. You know, because he does help that family get away. Sure. And because of historical records, blah, blah, blah. He, the, the further fan wank, yes, Sam was there to right. save that family. We don't really know what happened to that family, but some greater good was done because of it. I'll buy the other thing that's the, th- the other thing that's completely odd in this episode is that uh, Isaac has a son named Emmanuel who has a son who has a son, uh, Martin Luther King. But but in, in, in our history, Martin Luther King's grandfather was actually John, not Emmanuel. So maybe Quantum Leap is just is just using season five to reinforce the fact that they are a parallel timeline. Sure. And that that and, and that maybe 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 I don't know. I'm not gonna say that. I don't even want to give it. I don't even give it thought. <laughs> Okay. I was going to start talking about Aaliyah and Lothos and the evil project. Oh, maybe sure. Maybe being a parallel timeline. Maybe being our timeline. Oh, ooh. All right. <laughs> but so after yesterday, no. Yeah. But no, no, no. Let's not. Yeah. Um, so, so anyway, uh, so uh, in the plot of the episode, uh, I think we've gotten from uh, the barn. They're going to hang Sam uh, the next day, supposedly. But now she is tending to his wound in the dining room. Uh, they have this kind of somewhat a little bit antagonistic thing. And like, as we know, like, oh, Sam, whenever he's going to fall for a woman, they got to have this little yeah. antagonistic thing going on. Um, the, the, the mustard, what's it called? The little, the, the, the thing. The mustard that she, poultice. The, the, yeah, the mustard poultice that she's making. Um, and uh, yeah, she's going to be treating with that. And then, uh, and then Al shows back up, and then we get kind of like the, the drop of the episode is that Sam's great grandmother is, of course, Olivia. Back to the future setup, and I, I, I get it from a writing standpoint, but it's just like Sam's initial reaction of "No, she's my what?" God damn! I'm like, "Oh God, come on, really, really? Right, Are we right, doing right. this?" Luckily, they they did not dwell on that for too long, right? Uh, obviously, because what are you going to do? Uh, it, it's been pointed out in Matt's book and other things like looking up trivia on this episode. Uh, Al kind of sets up the stakes that if uh, John and Olivia don't get together, that Sam's parents will never be born. Right. 
That is a that is a very uh, oversimplification. Uh, Sam's parents won't be born. Uh, Sam's dad would never be born. Uh, right. But yes, Thelma would. Yes. Um, but yeah, he's got to keep the romance on track, as uh, as, as Al points yeah. out. And this is the line where he, he says, "Go get him. Go get him, Rat." Also yeah, worth and, noting and so, that earlier in the episode, uh, Al has noted that he has always had a thing for Southern girls. Yeah, and he of calls. He and I, at one point, and at one point, he does call uh, Olivia Scarlet as well. Um, the the, you know, the other thing that I will say is that uh, even though I just defended the position uh, a few moments ago, that the episode certainly doesn't do any little extra effort to let us know that Sam potentially changes things. So I will say that it seems like maybe they weren't thinking too much about it. They were kind of just like, look, we're doing this great costume drama. Just write a script and, you know, we're not going to worry too much about the intricacies of it all. And again, that is certainly something that I think would be different if this episode were were made today. Uh, Because in past episodes, they've been a little bit more explicit about you must have changed this when you did blah, 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 blah. And that's not necessarily something we get. And again, that didn't bother me, but it it, it 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 is definitely fuel to anyone who sees this episode as having those issues, you know, that you were talking about earlier. Sure. And again, we, we've said this many times over the course of this podcast, when they made these episodes, they did not intend for them to be put out on home video and for people to be dissecting them. They were there for people to half watch while they were doing other stuff. Yeah, on a Wednesday night or Friday night, whenever the episode was airing. Now, uh, so yes, never we, did they dream that they would undergo the scrutiny that they would two yeah, dudes that yeah in Chicago. People, yeah, that people in, would be twenty twenty. Uh, yeah, that people would be unpacking this, but yeah. Uh, so, so from there, I do believe the next scene are we. Uh, oh yeah, this is when Isaac comes in. There's a fire. Um, yeah, fire in the barn. They're about to run out. Sam says, "Hey, you know, hey, you know, let me out. Let me help you." Uh, they put the fire out, and then this is when we are introduced uh, for the second time to uh, Lieutenant Richard Montgomery, played by Jeffrey Lower. Um, I, I say the second time because we do get a pretty good shot of him in the opening sequence. Uh, he is actually the officer that shoots Sam at the beginning of the episode. Yeah. So we've already uh, seen Jeffrey him. Lower. Jeffrey Lower, Lower, whatever. Lower, however. Um, yeah, he's a Juilliard grad um, with lots of film and television credits. Uh, probably most notably played Reverend Tim Johnson on Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, for 113 episodes. Uh, uh, he's okay. also associated with the Public Theater and the New York Shakespeare Festival, so good on you, Jeff. Um, and, uh, yeah, he, you know, he comes in and uh, right off the bat, like, there's no hiding what he's after. <sighs> yeah. He has designs on Miss Olivia. <laughs> yeah, he is the Biff Tannen of this episode, and we'll draw more parallels <laughs> as we go along. A little bit more charming, but yes. Yeah. Um, and, it's and interesting. I, in this episode, Sam is both Marty and George McFly. <laughs> he is, yes. Consolidation. Um, and I've always interpreted that even from the beginning. Montgomery vaguely recognizes Sam slash John as the person that he shot. Yeah. He's he's suspect from the beginning. And let me tell you, Sam's accent doesn't help. <laughs> <laughs> reading no. 
uh, uh, reading that, I recently uh, stumbled upon an article that was talking about Scott Bakula's very spotty New Orleans accent on uh, uh, NCIS New Orleans. Uh, how he he's got a fair amount of criticism for it off and on. I, th- I think even in the, in the article, like even Scott Bakula has, has basically shrugged and been like, eh, "This is what you get. What are you gonna do?" Right, right. Um, yeah, but eh. you know, it's yeah. Scott Bakula. <laughs> uh, but it's nice to see Sam roll. I, I haven't seen like the last time like Sam really got into like uh, accent level throwing a thing on. Uh, whatever. And it kind of, I never really thought about it. Like, does Sam really need to affect an accent? Right. Is it like one of those things, like, does it go along with, like, they see him as this and, the, you know, his his height and his thing and whatever. Like, if the person that he leaps into has an accent, wouldn't Sam already have that accent? Right. <laughs> Although, arguably, John wouldn't have, wouldn't necessarily have the accent that he's affecting for Aubrey Woody. Ah, yeah, that's a good point. I but I get, but but uh, but you're right. I don't know. Yeah, it's an affectation for the episode, whatever. And let's face it, Aubrey Covington. I like to say Aubrey Covington the third. I don't know why. <laughs> uh, is 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 a delight. Uh, yeah, Sam. You know, Sam sells it really well. It's it's a nice little moment of of, of comedy, and, and yet. There, there's the stakes are still clear, and I think part of that has to do with like Jeffrey Lower. You, you know, it's interesting to me because he does, in essence, as we've kind of complained about before. Complained might not be the right word, but certainly nitpicked before. Some of our villains tend to be those mustache twirling villains, and they oh, are yeah. fairly, you know, cardboard. But there's something about Jeffrey Lower that he, he is that he is the mustache twirling villain, and yet he doesn't feel as cardboard. He, there's there's a little bit more just a life and vitality and ickiness that he you know he takes it to just a little a little step up than some of the others that we've gotten throughout the course of the series and I actually I didn't so I didn't mind it never did it bother me that he was like this is the villain this is the bad guy and maybe that's also because of when we were you know that there that there was a little bit uh, there's more at stake than one lone you know evil Confederate lieutenant. And, and and perhaps that's also the the thing that kind of helped me uh, accept him. I don't know. I don't know. But I I, I just I like him in the role, and uh, the interplay between him and Sam is done well as as well as Olivia. Uh, Sam has one of the the lines of the episodes uh, when he talks about his injury on his arm uh, about some half wit medic applying a mustard poultice. Mm-hmm. It's just a great bit of sort of classic you know screwball esque yeah. comedy. You a little know. salt in the wound. Yeah. Yeah. No pun intended. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, you know, it, 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 I, I do think that when when Montgomery does use when he does drop that in bomb, uh, that that Sam Scott he does this great little thing where you can see it land on him, similarly to the way that it's landed on other episodes that 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 word has been thrown around, and and yet he just kind of carries on because he knows he has to, which I thought was really great. You know, it's like he's not going to he's 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 not going to not let it register. But at the same time, he's not going to give away that, you know, he's yes. Aubrey Covington, the third. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, and it's like, it's like I, I never really thought of Montgomery as the mustache-twirling villain. Because like I said, uh, there is kind of a slow burn thing that he's doing. Like, he suspects Sam from the beginning, but he's not immediately calling him out. He doesn't like, have the proof. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right about that. That's a really good point. He's He takes his time, and yeah. I think that, that maybe that does, yeah take him out of that mustache-twirling villain arena. Yeah, like, he's circling back, and he's just, like, trying to find the right moment to, like, yeah, to get yeah to get Sam. Or, uh, yeah. He's yeah. smarter than Biff. Smarter. Smarter, yes. Smarter than... Uh, <laughs> in the background of the scene, like, they just put out the fire. Uh, Isaac is standing in the background the entire time. I just realized we totally glossed over. Uh, we did not mention Michael Roberts. Uh, maybe it's because... Uh, he's a familiar face. We've seen him before. He was in The Color of Truth. I can't remember. Uh, he was uh, the son of... Played uh, Jesse's son, yeah. Jesse's son, yeah. I can't remember his name, yeah. Um, but yeah, we, we've already seen him in that episode. I think Is he just in the one scene in The Willis, Color of Truth? At the, at the house? At the house when... The, yeah. The, the Chitlins? Yeah, yeah. I think, you're, yeah, I think okay. you're right. I remember him having um, a bigger part in that episode, but yeah. Well, I mean, that scene is fairly... I mean, it's pretty considered. significant, yeah. So, sure, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah uh, I mean, a lengthy career. Lots and lots of film and television. Um, most recently, um, uh, was actually in the Heathers TV show. Uh, also uh, had a part in uh, A Star is Born with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also on a uh, television show called The First Family about a, a black president and, uh, and his family in the White House. Um, I don't really know much about the TV show. I just know it, it, it existed. So, sure. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I'm just looking over his IMDb page. He was on an episode of the Michael Richards show. Oh. That was the oh, Arliss. All of these. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, but um, we played the head librarian in the Friends episode, the one with Ross's library book. Oh, okay. All right. Fair. Um, I've only seen but a handful of episodes of Friends. So whenever people start making the Friends references, I'm just like, I got, I got, I got, I got yeah. nothing. Anyway, uh, so from that, do we get uh, oh them working on the on the on the pump, the water pump outside, trying to get the thing? Yes, kind of like Sam's arm seems to be feeling better. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and can we just and, and I think I, I may have briefly mentioned this in our last episode. Is I think it's just obvious wherever they're shooting this on location, they just found a house that could kind of pass for a Southern house. And it's obvious that house is not doing well. I mean, that, that's not a, that's not a house that has been damaged by war. That, a, that is a house that has just been sitting there for a while in early 1993. And it's just, it's just a run down. Yes. Yeah. And obviously when they're inside, they're shooting on a set and Oh, it just sticks out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, Matt Dale's wonderful book, Beyond the Mirror Image uh, gives us uh, the note that the episode was filmed at Walt Disney's Golden Oaks Ranch in Santa Clarita, California, um, where elements of one strobe over the line were shot, uh, most oh, yeah. evident during the opening scene, uh, mm-hmm. as the structure behind Sam is clearly where the confrontation with the lion uh, yeah. had been yep. created mm-hmm. during that episode. Uh, but no, you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's clear that that... that uh, that house had seen better days, yeah. which I guess in a way is, you know, is also true of, of, of Olivia's home. Uh, sure. Based on yeah. some of the information she gives us. Um, yeah. It's interesting because we get, you know, 
more of this sort of tension-filled romantic slub- subplot between Sam and his great-grandmother, um, <laughs> which uh, w- which is fine. It, it, it makes me wonder sometimes if, like, did they come up with the concept of the episode first as far as, like, hey, let's put him in the Civil War, and then somewhere along the line somebody said, well, we got to have a reason he, you know, he leaps without outside of his own lifetime, because we set that rule up. And then they're like, oh, well, we'll just have him leap into his great-grandfather. But then they didn't really change much else of the episode, so that all the romantic subplot is still there. Or do you think that the intention was Sam is going to romance his great-grandmother? I think it's the first, just because yeah. they, don't, they don't really do too much else with the other thing. Like, right? initially, initially him being kind of weirded out by the thing... And then after that, there's no other thing. Like, I mean, this one, like, he, he's just kind of having a conversation. It's a little bit, you know, flirty, whatever. And dinner, we get a little bit more going down that thing. It's a little bit, you know, whatever. Um, like I said, if they wanted to get more, it's, uh, like, how... Uh, I, I don't know, like, a tasteful way they could have done it. I mean, they right. almost get there. Like, they almost get to a kind of a weird almost kiss in the thing. Yeah. Like, how far... I mean, there's an inherent ickiness when you think about um, making out with your, your sibling or, or, or your mother or your dad or whatever. Like, how far does that go back? Yeah. Like, if you have a chance to, like, make out with your great, 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 whatever, is that inherent ickiness still there? Right. I, I don't... I, I don't... We'll never... You know what, Dennis... Thankfully, that is a question we will never be able to answer. <laughs> we will never, never know. Um, but that is a good point because, yeah, even in sort of Al's wrap up at the end of the episode, nothing gets said about like, yeah, you kept your great grandparents together. Your parents are going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. Like there's never, you know, there's never that back to the future moment where the, you know, the, the, the picture starts to fade and, you know. Uh, all of a sudden, Katie Beckett disappears, and you know Sam's hand starts to feel funny. You know, there's never any kind of there's, like there's never <laughs> there's never yeah. <laughs> I mean, they could have gone another route. They could have had uh, they could have had them go the whole episode, and Sam and Al not know that Olivia right. was his great grandmother because because they've done stuff like that before, kind of vaguely yeah. with uh, uh, nowhere to run, and it turns out that Jennifer Aniston's character was the wife and the mom all along. Uh, right. You know they could they could have done a total thing where they fall for each other, they make out a little bit at dinner, and then at the end of the episode, like oh yep, that's that's the twist. That's kind of like your 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 Luke and Leia moment, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Um, they could have gone there, but but they didn't. Which is fine. Yeah. Which is fine. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing too that uh, that I'll throw out there right now because it's already happened and it's going to happen again uh, later in the episode. Sam is awful loose with his knowledge of the of the future of this episode. Oh yeah, he's yeah. spreading shit around, just he, like you know, Emancipation Proclamation. Women are going to get to vote, like just. And in his defense, most people are kind of like, you know. Well, you're just that's silly, you know. It's not it's not like he's really but at the same time he's still pretty loose lipped about the future. I mean it's one of those things like yeah, he he's speaking somewhat prophetically, but like what changes is he actually gonna make, you know? Right. He right, he, right. he he is saying very hopeful things. And you know, you could take it into like you know, when he uh 
you know, when we were talking to Isaac, we're like, no, Emancipation Proclamation, and you just have to have the faith that one day you're going to be free and you're going to have equal rights. And I think uh, especially in 2020, uh, like when, when you hear things like that, it, it just lands as such bullshit. Like I'm sure in the early 90s, it had the right effect. And it's certainly, like we've talked about it before, like it certainly had effect on on you and me because we grew yeah. up in, we grew up in areas where um, people were not just casually rateless, racist, but overtly racist all the time. And like when it impact, like what this show had to say about racism in general, like how that affected us. But even still like hearing Sam make speeches like that in 2020, you know, yeah, kind of, yeah. yeah, kind of hit you a little weird. You know, as a small counter to that, I will say that one of the things that that I did like is that Sam does kind of, as he goes through, you know, Emancipation Proclamation, Voting Rights Act, as he goes through all of these things, he wraps it up by saying it's going to take a very long time and a lot of hard work, but you will have equal rights. It landed on me. You're absolutely right about everything that you said. But the one thing I will say is it landed on me in such a way now in 2020 that said we're not done yet you know and yes i know that sam is coming from 1990 you know five or or 1999 or whatever you know when he started leaping and 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 that we know that at that particular time that what he's saying like you said is bullshit but hearing it with my 2020 ears there was something about it that almost felt like a bit of a call to action the idea that like we're not done yet that the work continues and 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 the idea that you can hang it on this continuum of progress you know however however hollow those victories might feel in light of certain things that have happened in this past year these past 4 or 5 years but there but there you know there are these sort of you know, signposts, road posts along the way, mile markers along the way, and and the idea that, you know, the work continues. And, uh-huh. and I liked that. And it's the same thing when he says what he says to Olivia about voting. You know, that landed in a very kind of special way because, you know, then hearing Kamala last night talk about, you know, 102 years ago, that means that when he tells this to Olivia, it was still 56 years away, which means in all likelihood, based on, you know, how long people lived, Olivia probably never actually got to see that happen. But Sam tells her about this. And, you know, and Kamala last night even dressed in suffragette white, you know, as she took the podium to deliver her speech. And, and, and like we were talking about earlier, the, you know, her, her saying that I may be the first, but I won't be the last, the idea that this continuum of progress, you know, the work continues, we're not done yet. And so I, I think maybe just because I was in a very sort of positive, idealistic frame of mind mm-hmm. when Sam was saying this stuff, that's kind of just how I took it in, you know? That's fair. Um, I think for me, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sound like super woke saying this right now. Uh, with everything going on, I'm reading a book that just came out a couple months ago called uh, Cased, The Origins of Our Discontents uh, by Isabel Wilkerson. And it's talking about how, uh, you know, even though slavery went away post-Civil War, racism absolutely did no way. Like the, like the case system that was set up uh, with blacks at the bottom still has not gone away. Um, and this is a, and I know this is a tangent, but like an interesting aside that I had no idea about, and it just kind of blew my mind, is that when um, the literal Nazi lawyers were writing legislation for the creation of the Third Reich, they looked to America as their inspiration. 
as a country that had a sterling reputation for democracy and told its story of democracy while at the same time oppressing so many of its people. I'm not sure if that makes sense of like where where my head is kind of at right sure. now of like uh, we we tell a story about how we're getting better right but well well yeah. it's the yeah I know I mean it's it is kind of it, 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 it is the ultimate you know s- slavery narrative yeah um the idea that we can you know say everything's just fine, you know, sure. that, that, that people in, in, you know, the fifties, for instance, in the North were able to sit comfortably and say, everything's just fine. While in the South Jim Crow laws prevented people from exercising their, their right, you know, that, that the vote was suppressed. Um, and that, and that it continues even to this day, you know, when sure. people like Stacey Abrams had to fight so hard in Georgia to make sure that people's voices would yeah. be heard and that people would vote. And, um, you know, we've seen what that turnout has done. So, uh, I know, I, 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 yeah, I'm, I, I'm certainly, you know, as along with, I'm sure many of our listeners are certainly not oblivious to that. And, and I think it is important to, to recognize that, um, and, and certainly to recognize that so many of the laws that were drafted, you know, after, uh, mm-hmm. emancipation and after, uh, the civil war, um, still found ways to, um, subjugate an entire race of people. Um, anyway, as you yeah, were saying, it's, it's, Sam, it's, Sam, it's a stain. Yeah, it's a stain. <laughs> Sam, Sam spreads around all this future knowledge a little bit like... He just yeah, spreads it, yeah, yeah. He just spreads he's, it around. He's, he's making it rain with the future knowledge. He is, yeah. Uh, so remind me, so, how do we get... Uh, so they're at dinner and Montgomery shows back up um, I'm trying to remember like how we got to them finding the family in the barn at that point. Right. So if I'm not mistaken, um, the, he helps her fix the well. Um, we cut to a scene later on at night. He hears a baby crying. He goes out to the barn. He sees the family there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Isaac comes in. That's where they have the conversation that, yeah. Yeah. And he tells them that the emancipation, you know, that, that, that they will be free um, and, uh, the interesting thing about that scene, um, that I actually wanted to mention a little bit earlier when we were talking about white savior stuff is that the, the family that we see, they have no lines and that might just be because of what they could afford, frankly, but it's just such an odd choice that the only dialogue that happens about the well-being of these people is between Isaac and Sam. And um, I kind of wish that they would have, that, that maybe they would have crafted a scene where everybody got to talk a little bit. Because it just, it, it, it felt a little weird to me, frankly. And again, it might have just been the production. You know, they couldn't afford to pay these people to speak because we know, you know sure. uh, with, with our involvement, that the minute they open their mouth and, and, and utter a line, you have to pay them more than if they just sit there silently, sure. uh, which is one of those, you know, 
crazy things about about the acting world, but it's true. Yeah. And so, you know, it could have just been that. Maybe maybe their lines were just all given to Isaac. I don't know. Maybe they never had any lines. Yeah. It didn't uh, really jump out to me in that scene. It jumped out to me in the, the, the later scene when Montgomery and his men catches them all, and there's discussion of hanging. Like, there's there's one shot that jumped out at me. It's just like you, you see the couple, the black couple, standing in the background. Like... Like, they're being told they're about to be hanged, like, yeah. right now. And, like, they're not even given so much as as any kind of little expression of, of anything. That it's just like, oh, right. these these characters are just props. You right. know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which is, which is also an uncomfortable truth about the episode because it does start to make you kind of feel like, is that, you know, and I'm not saying it was, but is that how the people making this episode felt, you know, are they basically, are they just using these, these people of color as props in order to tell this story? Because that's the other thing that's odd. Like we get the feel good moment at the end, which we'll come to in a little bit, but it, this episode is so not about the freedom of these people as much as that's something that gets used to help to motivate some of these other characters. Yeah. And I think that that's a little unfortunate. Mm-hmm. You know, that it is more about Olivia. Sure. Yeah. And, and her, and their her journey, their journey. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. But then we get, uh, so then we get back inside. And so, like, the catching them in the barn, there's a whole fight between uh, Montgomery and, and Aubrey Covington, the third. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, this whole thing of do we hang them now or do we hang them? At sun- in Virginia, we have a tradition about whether we, we do our executions at sunrise or whatever. Yeah. Uh, since I outrank you. Right. Oh, Scott Bakula playing the accent, yeah. I think. Um, Which so- is interesting because one of the things, of course, that Montgomery brings up is the fact that, like, I'm not in your army, which is one thing that I do feel like a lot of people don't necessarily understand in particular about the early days of the war is that a lot of these soldiers that were fighting in particular um, for the South were not necessarily a part of, like, any unified army. They were state militias that were run by... Uh, you know, generals in their state. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so their, you know, their hierarchy, their chain of command was not necessarily the same as saying like the United States army, um, which is one of the reasons why, uh, you know, eventually people, you know, think not only was it the industry, of course, of the North, but that the, that the organizational skills of the North kind of, you know, helped to, to win the war because the South were, were unable to organize their armies in the same way because they were basically these individual state militias that were banding together to represent the Confederate States of America. So it's, it, 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 it is kind of a nice touch uh, of historical accuracy for Montgomery to kind of quibble with him uh, about that. You know, like, I don't answer to your, you know, my, my general is John Adams of Virginia, not, you know, wherever Tennessee you come from. So it is kind of an interesting moment. Um, just of historical context, but uh, yeah, and then there's also the dinner with um, the dinner with, uh, with that dinner dress. I just wanted to yes. just talk about the dress for a second. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> what an interesting choice, Olivia. Uh, it was a choice. Choices were made. A red and black dress. I guess, yeah. like, all right, all right, sure. 
I mean, you know, if you got to do a costume drama, right? Go, you know, go all out, go do it. Why not? Uh, but here's the, the jump on me. So they get back inside, and uh, so Sam uh, basically sets up Olivia and Montgomery so he can distract Montgomery so he can get back out to the barn to uh, to free Isaac and the other couple. And and here is another uh, back to the future parallel in that part of the plot resolution involves putting a girl in danger to be taken advantage of as part of the plot. Because in Back to the Future, part of the thing of getting George and Lorraine back together after Marty screws it up is setting up that that Marty's going to take advantage of her in the parking lot so George can come up and rescue her. Right. Not exact parallel, but... Although, I will... I will argue the fact that people that criticize that element of Back to the Future aren't paying attention. Because initially, with Marty's intent, Lorraine would never have been in any danger. Whatsoever. That it would have just been the appearance of George there to stop Marty from, you know, doing whatever. And it's it's Marty, you know, getting taken out by Biff's gang that then gives Biff the opportunity to actually put her in danger. So it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, I don't know if you're paying attention if you're criticizing this plot element, because it's like, it's not the, the point was not that I'm putting this person in danger. But I mean, she would not have been in literal danger, but she would have been made to feel so at least for a couple of minutes. She would have had to, she? she would have had to have felt in danger enough so that when George swooped in and rescued her, she became attracted to him by that point. She had to feel yeah. in danger at some point so that George could bring her out of that danger. I think that's the point. I still like Back to the Future. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I do still, I, I still love Back to the Future. Uh, that just, yeah, that moment hits you weird. But anyway, um, so yeah, so Sam starts uh, playing, uh, yeah, the player piano, which one of the uh, historical mistakes of the episode is that player pianos were not invented until 1863, were not in wide use until a decade later, so that's a thing, but blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, we are in a different timeline. But, uh, <laughs> so Sam uh, gets some going, gets some distracted, pours some brandy into the coffee, which Al has some feelings about. Uh, and he's like, all right, I'm, I'm going to leave you two to get to know each other, and I'm going to go out, and I'm going to give the soldiers something to drink and keep them company. Um, I really like the scene between Sam and I don't think he ever gets a name other than Private. Uh, yeah. I really uh, just like, like, like Sam pulling him in and giving him some, you know, just that whole dialogue of, oh, this is more than coffee. Oh, something to take the edge off. Blah, blah, blah. Right, right. Yeah. Look at them. Are they going anywhere? Have some more. And then my, I don't know why I've always found it funny. Hey, what's your name again? Daryl? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I've always loved that moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a pretty straightforward plan, right? Yeah. And it works. Mm-hmm. Um, so he he now has has basically gotten their their freedom yeah. uh in in essence um and then he goes back to to save Olivia 
Um, and he's he's got a pistol with him this time, so mm-hmm. you know that'll help, right? Sure. Uh, only it doesn't. Yeah, that hasn't worked since Bull Run. Yeah, which we also know is is not historically accurate because as a Confederate soldier, he would have called it the Battle of Manassas. Sure. Because the the North named their battles after the river closest, which yeah. would have been Bull Run, and the South tended to name them uh, for the closest town, which was Manassas. Sure. So Bull Run, Manassas, it's the same battle, which is just called different things by the sides. Sure. Uh, anyway, uh, so now Sam no longer has a gun, but that's okay because Olivia springs into action and gets you know Montgomery to miss his shot on Sam, and, yeah. uh, and, and Sam's able to take him out and finish the job. Yeah. And uh, then, it is uh, worth noting, yeah, during this uh, monologue that somewhere off camera Montgomery did find Sam's uniform with the bullet yes. hole so thus confirming that he is the, the man that he shot at the beginning of the episode uh, but yeah uh, Olivia springs into action helps Sam they get him knocked out um, wh- what happens to Montgomery after that <laughs> what happens to him and his men we don't know nope are no they clue. are they just tied up and left inside the house just so Olivia and Isaac and John can get away I, I, perhaps. Because <laughs> then, from there, we're, we just go to the next morning into the final scene. Yeah. I had forgotten that, yeah, they are just done away with quick dispatch, and that's about it. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is a pretty tidy, uh, easy escape. Um, you know, there's, there's, uh, uh, um, a sort of an element of tension that's brought back in is, as Al pops in to let them know that you know there's there's nobody around you're you're you're, you're safe now. But it, it is it kind of in a way parallels the beginning you know with the travel from the creek to the barn that we don't see. You know this is the travel from the house to wherever the hell they are now that we don't see. And and it is in a way it's too bad you know obviously if this were a film we would have gotten sort of the you know even if it was a clip filled you know harried journey as they try to escape. Um, but yeah it, it, that's it. Mm-hmm. The episode's done. It's over. That's Except it. For one moment. Yeah, they're uh, yeah. John and Olivia are going to get together, and then we get the the little kiss with history here. Yeah, yeah. So I want to provide a little context. Sure. I was watching this. Um, you know, I, I started the episode, believe it or not, before the call was made on CNN. I'd gone upstairs sure. uh, to to do something. I don't even remember quite what it was. It was I was helping uh, you know, do some upstairs. So I, I run upstairs. I pause the episode, and while I'm upstairs, I get the notification on my phone, and I'm like, "This just happened." And Jess hears like fireworks, which what we learn fireworks outside at that same moment, and I'm and I'm like, "Oh, well, that's why we're hearing the fireworks." So. I come back downstairs after, you know, discussion, talking with her and, you know, be with her and Hattie for a minute. I come back downstairs to finish the episode. And as I'm watching the episode, I get to this part and uh, I'll be damned. It it got me. It got me big time. And a lot of that has to do with Michael Roberts because he is, you know, we we talked a little bit last week uh, about one of our guest actors um, in in the episode, uh, Beast Within. uh, 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 I don't want to mistake myself here. We talked about uh, is it Sean, yeah, it was Sean Sullivan mm-hmm. as yeah. Roy uh, in, in, in last week's episode, Beast Within, and and um, this is you know one of those moments where you just you, 
everything works and 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 his performance is is magnificent and you know physically his presence is just so big and you know and vocally um it lands so as he tries to you know inform them of what he wants his last name to be um because obviously a lot of slaves didn't have last names sometimes they were given the last names of their masters um but more often than not they chose their own last name when they were when they were freed and uh he, he says he thought about Covington, he even thought about Beckett, um, and then he goes on to say, you know, but right now I feel like a king, so if it's not too uppity, he says, I, I think I'd like that to be my last name. And, uh, you know, of course then Al gives us the, the info dump uh, about who his uh, great-grandson is going to turn out to be, Martin Luther King Jr., and, uh, and of course Sam is in all of them, but, the, but, but when... But it, it just, it really got me. It got me, it got me teary-eyed in the throes of the election news and everything else. Um, it, it really hit me. And so um, I know that there are critics of this moment and this particular reveal. Some say it's unnecessary. Even Matt in his book, for instance, is not a fan of this moment. Uh, but yesterday, in the midst of everything that was happening, it got me. And I can remember pretty vividly watching this episode when I was, you know, an 11-year-old boy and, 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 and really thinking it was fantastic then so for me for me for right here for right now it worked it's okay by me no i mean uh yeah when i was a kid i i i loved the moment and it's only looking at like i said really only looking at the episode more critically and like what you know we talked before like what did sam really do in this episode that changed the original history you know um I mean, it's certainly, it could have been, uh, this just bringing it in my head right now, like, uh, Isaac could have been on his way to pick a different name, like Beckett or Covington, you know, or whatever, and then Al steps in and you're like, oh, this is who he's going to eventually going to be. At least we didn't have, like, a Peggy Sue moment uh, of, uh, hey, Isaac, why don't you try King? <laughs> might, might sound a little better, you know? Um, yeah, and, and so to bring back an, uh, back around another Back to the Future reference, um, would Isaac's la- would Isaac have always chosen the name King, or did something Sam do influence him picking the name? Mm-hmm. Would Chuck Berry have always written Johnny Be Good on his own, or was it because Marvin Berry held up the phone at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance? while Marty was playing, that that gave Chuck Berry the idea. I am of the mind that Chuck Berry would have always written Johnny Be Good without Marty's influence. I am of the mind Isaac would have always chosen the last name of King, Sam's presence regardless. Right. Yeah, I, I think you're I, I think you're absolutely right about both of those things. I do think the interesting thing is that the circumstances potentially of Isaac's um, you know run to freedom if you will uh, would have maybe been a little bit different and I wonder if you know if it hadn't happened in the same way um, yeah I don't know I don't know. I, I, again, it kind of it, it, it makes you fall back on the criticism of, of, of sliding this episode specifically into that that white savior, 
you know, era because it, it Sam Sam has to give him permission. Yeah, and I think I love everything Isaac does, but it does bother me that Sam has to give him permission to take that last name. Yeah, you know. I would have rather perhaps seen a a moment of true empowerment where Isaac just says, this is how I feel. And so this is how, this is the, this is the last name I'm choosing as opposed to if it's not too uppity, what do you guys think? Sure. Give me your approval. Um, I don't know, but it is, it is, it is what it is. Uh, and, 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 and I think that, um, that sure that, that that the criticism of the episode is valid, and and that uh, the that the question of what did Sam change, how did he change it, you know what what really was this leap about, um, it, it does muddy the waters and it, it 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 gives I think fuel to anyone that wants to categorize this episode as you know a. a not so great episode as an episode that exemplifies the white savior trope as an episode that, um, even potentially, uh, stokes the, the flames of that lost cause mythology, you know, whatever, like, you know, maybe it does get a lot of things wrong, but at the end of the day, if I choose to kind of divorce myself from that line of thought and look at it as you know, 45 minutes of quantum leap, I think, I think it's, it's an enjoyable episode. I think so. I think, uh, much like you said earlier, um, you get, you got to put art in its historical context. You put Gone with the Wind in its, in its historical context. There are there are a lot of things to love about the episode. I am not comparing this episode to Gone with the Wind in any way. <laughs> right, right. But um, I, I do think it has some value, even putting it into its context. And like I said, 30 years ago... Um, there were very different conversations, you know, around uh, race and how and how we talked about civil war and um, and the white savior trope and and all of that and all of that. Though. Yeah. Um, going back and rewatching the episode, I I was afraid that the civil war element was going to look a little cheesy because they had never done something like that deeply yeah. historical. And sure. rewatching that opening sequence. It would have, it would have been interesting, like had the show gone on to a sixth, seventh season, and they decided to explore that element to like you know take advantage of that uh, the, the 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 leeway of Sam being able to leap along his family's lifetimes. Could they have done other episodes set uh, further in the past, and could they have pulled them off? Right from a production level, and I think they could have. Yeah, because it's clear, like, it's clear that if you, if you, if you really scrutinize the episode, it's clear that they, you know, that some corners were cut, that even in the opening scenes, they reuse a couple of shots of the soldiers firing their guns oh, or sure. whatever. Yeah. But like you were saying, they pull it off. And at the time they were making it, they never expected people to scrutinize the episode that way. So they were just looking to say, like, did, did, did we get there? And I think the answer is yes. And I agree with you. I think should they have continued to explore other eras that they would have continued to pull it off, found ways to pull it off. And I think that inventiveness is, is such a, is a hallmark of, of, of good, especially sci-fi television, 
You know, I think that, that there are so many shows that find ways to pull those things off, even, even shows with a higher budget. You know, it's like, okay, when you want to imagine certain things, I mean, oh my God, you look at something like Star Trek in the 60s. They used the same damn soundstage and the same damn foam rocks and the same, you know what I mean? Like they found a way to make it work. And, 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 and you know, you look at classic Doctor Who, you know, they, they found a way to make it work. And you look at some of the episodes that they had that, you know, were period episodes. Or there's a, there's a classic episode from the series that was early on, I believe it was the second uh, season, 1964, uh, called The Aztecs. And they were able to, and don't get me wrong, that episode has a lot of problems contextually in 2020. You know, I'm not, not trying to talk about any of that. But you just look at the production values of the episode, and they do make you think that you are indeed in, you know, this this Aztec city. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, I, I think that that streak of inventiveness would have absolutely continued, and they would have found themselves, you know, pulling stuff like that off. Because you look at a lot of the episodes, especially a lot of the episodes of this this season in particular, and and they weren't taking a lot of chances when it came to where and when an episode was. You know, it's almost like we talked about this before. It's like they 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 blew their production budget on Lee Harvey Oswald, and so they had to figure out how the hell to stretch the rest of it for the rest of the season. Yeah. And so uh, I think that this episode is a great example of what they could have accomplished. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Go back to the opening sequence when I was watching the episode this morning. It was so well done, and I know Quantum Leap has a tendency, like when they do big pieces, like they will just flat out borrow from from movies. They'll borrow from other things. Right. And so, like, I was looking. I was like. Did they actually shoot this footage for this episode, or did they borrow it from something? <laughs> and like, while I did notice that they reused several of the shots throughout this brief sequence, uh, I was like, no, like they actually shot all this for this episode. That's yeah. kind of cool. Maybe they could, yeah, uh, call the pull off. Um, and speaking of, we'd be remiss if we didn't point out uh, one of the novels does take advantage of this uh, of this plot device. Um, and they have Sam leap further back into the Revolutionary War in the novel Independence. Um, I'm trying to remember like he, uh, how far back he goes, but he leaps into another one of his descendants there. And it's been over 20 years since I've read that book. Uh, I would have to go back and, and, and pick it back up. I don't remember anything about the plot other than he leaps even further back into the Revolutionary War. Right, right. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember much about it either. Um, I have it. We'll talk about yeah. it someday. Uh, <laughs> but uh, also, you know, worth mentioning, as, as we've done uh, before, try to do somewhat consistently um, other uh, voices and opinions about the episode uh, that exist out there. Um, it, it's an episode that you, you go over to Al's place, for instance, and you take a look at, at what people ha- have had to say. Um, it, it's interesting because there are some people that, you know, enjoy, like, the kiss with history uh, that enjoy the fact that he's in the Civil War, that he's his great grandfather, that you know, kind of uh, get some enjoyment out of that. There are other people that you know do find the episode to be confusing. That are like, "What the hell was he there to change?" So it's, it, it, it does seem to be an episode that divides opinion, and yet a lot of people will, will at least say that this is a good episode, if not excellent episode. Um, so even criticisms aside, I think it's kind of like what you and I were just saying. It's like, hey, you know, you can you could criticize and scrutinize this episode for a lot, but it is an enjoyable piece of quantum leap um over at the macgyver project he was a lot more glowing about it uh he thought it was a great episode um and uh you know was, was grateful for the fact that we have a historical episode that takes place 
even deeper into the past. And, and I think it is ground that, you know, would have been interesting to see explored even more. Um, much like you were saying, given the relatively small budget of, of an episodic television series, they did an excellent job of recreating the period. So yeah. Yeah. there you go. So yeah, it's interesting always to, to hear, um, what others have to say about the episode. Uh, Matt in his book, you know, kind of already alluded to this, um, was, you know, I think kind of like us on the surface, fun costume drama, um, you know, but that there are some things, unfortunately, that, that, that go wrong. Um, the, the, the confused plot, um, etc. Um, you know, he says just, it's, it's, it isn't a bad episode. In fact, it's a lot of fun. It just doesn't stand up to too much scrutiny, which I think is exactly, exactly how we feel. feel yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And I do think, kind of piggybacking on what you were saying earlier about the production values, that even story-wise, it would have provided them with a lot of things to explore, a lot of ground to cover that they hadn't yet done. And, and I think the episode is successful enough to warrant them finding other ways, you know, into the, the, the distant past. Now, certainly one could argue that based off of what happens in Mirror Image, that Sam could go anywhere he wanted to, anytime he wanted to, and didn't need to be bound by the rules of the project. For sure. Um, so that the shackles could have been thrown off. They wouldn't have even needed to use the whole genetic transference thing. And he could have just gone any, any when uh, he wanted to. So uh, I'm sure the episode Quantum Leap, Jesus Christ Superstar, would have been coming soon. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> I'm kid, I'm kid. Uh, but yeah, so, so overall, I think, it, you know, looking at it as, as an experiment, I think that it was a successful experiment. I think so too. And I almost kind of wish like this had been like the next to last episode. I love mm-hmm. Elvis, but I think we're going to find that this was a much stronger episode than the one we're going to talk about next yeah. week. Speaking of which, he leaps yeah. out. He's being taken down the stairs by a couple of hooligans. Yeah. They're going to cut his hair. He looks in the mirror, and it is the face of an actor playing out. No, uh, it's the face yeah. of Elvis Presley. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah. Yeah, actually, the actor uh, I believe uh, is Michael Saint Gerard. Is that right? I can't remember the actor's name. I think now. so. Yeah, I believe that's correct. But uh, um, yeah, the, the lots of, lots to talk about with him when we get to um, yeah Michael Saint Gerard. That's the actor's name when we get to uh, next week because of course there was a short-lived television program called Elvis in which he played Elvis. Um, mm. We'll talk a little bit about that show as well, of course, as the episode Memphis Melody. Dennis, you grew up with Elvis and Elvis oh, music. Oh, yes. I grew up with Elvis and Elvis music. Huge fan. First records I ever spun were Elvis records. Still, to this day, will sing Elvis songs to Hattie at night before she goes to bed. Uh, so I have a feeling we're going to have a lot to say about the context of this episode. We are. I'm interested. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Um I don't want to bring it back around. We started this episode talking about Biden. I have a way to bring it back around uh, to talking about that and tying Elvis in. So uh, it, it wasn't Biden's acceptance speech last night. It was the the brief address that he gave two nights ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and Betsy, when we watched it together, she was deeply affected how uh, Biden started stuttering over himself when he started talking about loss and death mm. uh, in relation to uh, 
Biden has had two sons pass away. Am I mistaken that? Son and a daughter. A son and a daughter. daughter right. Young daughter was killed in a car accident with his that's first right, that's wife. Right. And then, yeah, his son died a few years back. Yeah. A few years back, yeah. And so uh, she started stutter- he started stuttering over himself, and that deeply affected Betsy. Uh, have you ever listened to Revisionist History by Malcolm Gladwell? Malcolm Gladwell, yes, yeah. Uh, have you listened to the episode about Elvis, or it includes Elvis? I've not. It is a fantastic song where or a fantastic episode where he uh he talks about how uh Elvis could never quite get the lyrics right to uh Are You Lonesome Tonight whenever he was performing it live. Mm-hmm. And this was true after him and Priscilla got divorced. And so Gladwell uses this as a way to explore how uh, it's called parapraxis, how when you start talking about something that you have deep psychological scars from, you, you lose your words mm-hmm. and you start studying over yourself. And he just plays like all these examples of like Elvis trying to perform that, that spoken part of Are You Lonesome Tonight? Uh, trying to perform it in concert and how he always got it wrong and how that was caused by by his own heartbreak in yeah. his life uh, and so Betsy and I are big fans of that particular episode and so when Biden started stuttering over himself talking about death and loss in his speech a couple nights ago that deeply affected Betsy yeah yeah um I think that two things. One, if, you know, anything, you know, listening to that podcast would be beneficial for me in the meantime, but having read quite a bit about Elvis, um, Peter Guralnik's two-volume biography of Elvis um, is is incredible, and uh, one of the examinations that that book uh, obviously delves into as as others uh, about his life uh, and documentaries have talked about is how lonely he truly was and how one of the amazing things that George Harrison actually says in the Beatles anthology documentary is he could never imagine, you know, people always talk about how huge the Beatles were, how huge the Beatles were. He could never imagine how hard things must have been for Elvis because there was only one of him and there were four of us. They always had each other. Elvis never had anyone. Like, arguably, even the people that came into his life that loved him, you know, you look at things that his father did, for instance. Like, after his mother died, he lived an incredibly lonely existence. He was a man who could have anything he wanted, who could do anything he wanted to do, who was incredibly gifted as a singer and and as an interpreter of, of, of the spoken word, if you will. And no one knew what it was like to be in his shoes, and no one was going to tell him no. And so, you know, I think that the, that the argument could also be made that, you know, in addition to that heartbreak and that heartache that he felt that, that he knew what it was to be lonely in a way that few other people did. Um, and I think the thing about Biden, you know, the sincerity, kind of to go back to what I was talking about earlier with the sincerity, is that that touched people and obviously like you were saying it touched Betsy and, and it certainly touched me and it touched Jessica and so did Kamala's speech and there were moments where it was impossible not to have uh, a lot of emotion 
well up, physically speaking, mm-hmm. um, while 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 being flooded with a type of sincerity that has been all too too lacking. So I look forward to more of that. Quite frankly, I look forward to being able to to laugh at an episode of John Oliver without being angry. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to to being able to cry a good cry as opposed to only the bad cries that I feel like have been infesting us for these past four or five years. So, um, yeah, it'll be, it'll be, I'm going to listen to that podcast. Well, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that next week because the episode's kind of thin. Um, (laughs) it'll be interesting because I know like even now, like even recently I saw some, I don't know, some, some posts, some thread on, uh, on Twitter or something like basically taking Elvis down several pegs. And yes, Elvis had some very deeply problematic behavior that would have been problematic then, but definitely like looking back in a 2020 lens. Uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to yeah, kind of open that up, talk about, uh, yeah, his life a little bit. Just like how, how do you put him and his life into context? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, and I, and I also have some thoughts of why in music we tend to go after Elvis for those kind of things that we don't go after other artists for similar kind of things. And I have some thoughts about classism and white trash and right, you know, uh, yeah, Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) Yeah. I'm looking forward to what you have to say. Um, well, uh, I think, uh, you know, on that note, this has been um, an epic episode of lots of thoughts, feelings, and opinions. Um, we don't want to be the only ones talking, so we certainly invite you to uh, hit us up on, on, on Facebook hmm. um, and let us know what you're thinking, what you're feeling. Um, and if I could just leave anyone, you know, I've been saying a lot of stay safe, take care of yourselves and each sure. other when we come to the end of these episodes. Uh, you know, that, that, that's always been my instruction, uh, to anyone listening. Uh, but this week I'm just going to say, feel good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We still, we still have a lot of work to do. We have, by the time we post this episode, we have about 70 days left of our current administration. There's still a lot more damage that can happen. Uh, but yeah, take a moment, soak it in. Right. Better days are ahead. You'll find some inspirational music to put under this part right here. <laughs> It'll probably be Springsteen or something. I don't know. All right. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's been a long road. Oh, God. I Get, knew you were going to no. do that. No, no. <laughs> you're the second person, actually. You're the second person, believe it or not, to bring that song up uh, in, in relation to Biden's win. I had another friend of mine send me that, uh, the YouTube video of Faith of the Heart. <laughs> Oh, it's the gift that keeps on giving. It really is. Anyway, on that note, wrap it up. Get yeah. out of here. Thank you for staying with us. This is, this is our first two-plus-hour episode in a while. It really is. Yeah. 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 So thanks for sticking You're around. Welcome. Yeah. <laughs> and we will see you next time for Memphis Melody. All right. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Yeah. Bye.